Hello, Mustangs. Welcome to the Apple Podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your other host, Asia. And today we're here with Dr. Orchard, which is very funny because this is the Apple Podcast. So for Apple lovers out there, it's very fitting. <laughs> what could I say? It was the 70s. <laughs> okay. Trina, please introduce yourself. It's a good place to begin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know my name, Trina Orchard. I've been at Western since 2008. My formative training is history and anthropology, but I'm in the School of Health Studies. And a lot of my training has been sort of intersectional women's studies, anthropology, health studies. And I've uh, done research about sexuality, gender, health among different marginalized communities, uh, folks with HIV, different indigenous communities. Uh, different groups of communities in sex work as well. And more recently, I've sort of turned my ethnographic lens to my own life, and I've been doing a lot of memoir writing and creative writing, specifically in relation to uh, digital spaces and dating apps. Let's go into the dating apps one. Let's. No, um, because I know you're working on, or you've finished working on the book, and it's on the way to be published right now, Sticky, Sexy, Sad. Yes, so it's Sticky, Sexy, Sad, Swipe Culture and the Darker Side of Dating Apps. Yes, and now it's sort of in this sort of long process en route to publication, and it comes out in April, at the end of April, and there's going to be an audio form, and it'll be available wherever you buy your books. And it sort of originated with my first experience using a dating app in 2017, and I'm not a digital or technical person still to this day, and I began swiping, and it was just a very foreign space confusing. I hadn't dated for a while and as a sort of relatively newly sober person it was it was a challenge to think about how am I going to meet people. I'm ready. I feel in a good space. This is where everyone apparently is meeting people so I took the plunge and I began using Bumble and I thought of course that would be a natural choice for me as a feminist using a feminist dating app in quotations feminist. Um, it didn't really feel all that feminist and that's one of the chapters. I explore that in the book. Um, but as soon as I began swiping, and it's not only confusing, but I knew that as someone who's very new to this kind of technology that I would be really extra alert to some of the things that I think a lot of us take for granted when we're swiping. And so sort of combining my anthropological expertise in looking at new cultures and my own lived experience as a woman seeking sex and relationships and just learning about all of this, it just kind of came together. And I began writing as a way to manage what kind of felt like traumatic experiences and just funny stuff. And naturally, again, as a, as a scholar, I'm like noticing all these different patterns and reflecting on my own engagement with technology, how that changed very quickly. And I just began writing. And so that sort of is the origin of, of the book. Really amazing. Just to see, like, it's evident you have, like, a very diverse background um, through your education, who, you, who you've worked with, the kind of groups. Is there, like, specific audience that you're hoping this book will get to? Yeah, that's a great question. And for this book, there are multiple audiences, you know. I mean, and that's kind of what I like about the way I write as well as the content because it's focused on, you know, primarily hetero, white, cis experiences. But the more I talk to such a diverse array of people, I'm realizing that a lot of us have experiences that are quite similar. And that is interesting because that tells us that it's about the technology, right? And so unpacking the design-related issues is one of the things I explore in the book. Um, but yeah, no, it's really exciting. And I think in terms of a primary audience, 
would be, you know, your generation in a way. Obviously, you know, Gen Xers like myself, I'm born in 1972, proud of it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I teach your age, you know, speaking with people who have never used a dating app. You know, they're always curious because we're always interested in sex. We're always interested in relationships. And there's so much changing in this, in this environment. A lot of people are sick of dating apps. So it's a pretty interesting time to be thinking and reflecting on them. I think that's a really good point that you made about how mm. it applies to our generation. Mm -hmm. Because even here at Western, I know that dating apps and the culture is very prevalent here. And a lot of young people, like especially in Gen Z, like in their late teens and early adulthood, they're using this time to kind of figure out who they are and what they like and like you said exploring and experiencing sex mm -hmm. and so I think it's a really good message that you're sending. Yeah and then you know one of the things that I learned early on was I was just discussing some of my challenges and weird things and like horror stories I guess with a couple <laughs> of students and they're like that's identical to our experience and at first I was like I felt embarrassed because I'm like uh, I'm in my 40s and you're 20 like how can this be the same two things really sort of generated some interest that I explored further and certainly featured in the book. And one of them is this, the, the way that the global uptick of these fairly universally designed platforms are producing experiences of intimacy that are fairly universal. I realize also that, you know, having a diverse, colorful, sometimes dangerous in the past um, set of experiences related to sexuality, meeting new people, you know, it was unique to me. And I realized that when she said, oh, that's the same as me, I felt not only embarrassed, but also I don't want to be the same as everybody else. I'm not the same as everybody else in anything else I do. Why would, you know, how do I think about this development in my contemporary, like, intimate life? And so those are really interesting things to reflect upon. For sure. I think, like, again, your book probably provides, or you're hoping it'll provide this sort of insight to, like, a wide range of audiences. Um, yes. who share similar experiences, but obviously kind of find through the book how to navigate these these platforms, right? Because it's something that's so prevalent, but also something that a lot of people don't know how to navigate. Yeah, and I think it's important to say straight away that it's not a guidebook, it's not a how-to book, but, you know, there are those, those exist, you know? And again, that kind of speaks to the formulaic nature of intimacy. This is how you conquer dating apps. It's like... It's dating apps, but it's also people. It's the conversations we're not having that really impact how people use it and how that, you know, really bleeds out into our, like, non-digital lives and experiences and vulnerabilities. And so one of the things I hope to kind of bring out in the book and that resonates with people is, you know, take a break from them perhaps, but also use them with sort of sharper eyes in the sense that, you know, it's a product that's designed by a company to make money. And I think a lot of times when we are successful, it's kind of an accident of the app because failure is built into these apps. If we found like our person of the moment right away, then we wouldn't be on them for very long, right? And so unpacking some of that technical stuff and just drawing attention to the corporate nature and the impact of corporate forces, desires, making money, and also to not blame yourself too much unless you're like behaving like a dick or whatever, then, you know, okay, then some of your, you know, the things are maybe your fault. But um, 
I think because so much of our experiences are produced by technology, which is beyond our control. And I think that we sort of blame ourselves for a lot of the things that happen or go wrong, or it must be me, I'm looking for the wrong person, oh, this person started out so amazing, and now what happened, or he's ghosted me, or she's ghosted me, it must be me. And it's such a huge cluster of issues. And I think that's important in, you know, using them sort of like buyer beware kind of might be one of the takeaway messages, but also... I'm really trying to own my vulnerability in this experience because I think that is really, really common. You know, in one of the chapters, I talk about actually contacting the Bumble customer support when I had my first experience of being ghosted. I'm like, where did he go? <laughs> I, I didn't know. I didn't know. And literally, I was like getting on the number two bus and I'm like, where did he go? Where did he go? Oh, I was like so embarrassed. I didn't understand what was going on. And I, and I emailed the Bumble customers and God bless them. <laughs> God bless them. They're like, maybe just check your settings. Um, you know, maybe just refresh something. It's like, oh no, dude is gone, right? <laughs> oh God, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes, I know. These are there are people who contact the you know dating app customers. You know, support. Yeah. <laughs> this is how this is how neat, naive I was, right? But like, you know, the book is sticky. It's sexy. It's sad. But it, I mean, I try to make sure it's also funny. Because the vulnerability piece is important in terms of just our emotional development and that resonance, but it's also like it's important to laugh too, right? Because we all we all mess up and we all have like strange experiences, right? That's another thing that we have in common about this. What I really like about that is you're so real in the book and you're so authentic. Not a lot of people are able to do that, especially authors. And when you're writing a book, like you said, a memoir and you're talking about yourself, it's really hard to be so vulnerable in the sense that you're not just talking about, you know, what you've accomplished and your strengths, but also talking about the sticky stuff, like you said, and being so transparent with readers. Mm -hmm. I think that's very admirable. Well, yeah, I mean, I really didn't know how else to write it because I don't have the winning, the winning formula and that's not what I'm interested in. And I think, thank you. I should start off with it. Thank you. <laughs> um, that writing about it's, it's a document for me as well to remember, you know, what was it like during the pandemic? Oh, I did that to that one. <laughs> right? It's no wonder he was like, yeah, I'm not really that interested. And I was like, all mean girls about it. I can't believe he dumped me. And I was like, girl, look at yourself in the mirror. You weren't being that interesting or nice or consistent. And, you know, so it was really an interesting sort of reflexive exercise as well to hold yourself to account. We wanted to discuss some health science pathways with you. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe I'm speaking like from a personal point of view, but like you said, you are an anthropologist and you don't have a health science background, but you are teaching health sciences. And I guess I'm just curious, and I'm sure lots of other students are too, lots of health science students who aren't sure what they want to do after because it's such a broad field. How did you get to where you are? Like, what was your pathway? Yes, and actually I just shared this very circuitous pathway with uh, a student yesterday. She had the exact same question. She's like, I thought I wanted to do this, and then I've taken some classes, and I want to know more about you and how you came to Western and this profession and these areas. And, you know, I suppose a lot of it goes back to childhood, right, in mm -hmm. terms of the different kinds of ways that I was influenced by my dad, who's a bit more sort of political, a bit more educated. Um, he was a teacher for one year. 
And then he sort of left the education system. He felt like this system really wasn't all that supportive to students, but he continued to teach different kinds of people. So he taught uh, women, uh, indigenous folks, and also people who just recently coming out of like correctional facilities about how to take care of their own vehicles, right? Which is like such a, you know, having a car is expensive. And, you know, it's it can be very empowering to be able to do some of these things on your own and also to not get taken advantage of, right? And so teaching is kind of an interesting stream in his life and then sort of connections with my stepmom who really was uh, a huge influence and still is very much a hardcore feminist in the sense, you know, sort of burning bras in the 70s, like very anti-establishment. She used to drive a little taxi in Toronto. Apparently it was like this like old VW bug that was like, painted like coca-cola red and had like her name like in coca-cola writing oh she was God, like oh hi that. hail hail that taxi but she's like worked for the bbc doing sound editing in northern ireland in the 70s traveling all over the world freelance photographer began law school at the age of 40 which is and then she had a 25 almost 30 years of research or of uh experience doing family law in a number of different cities and so that is very inspiring and on you know the I lived with my mom mainly growing up as well as my stepdad and um, neither of them completed formal education or high school but there was much to be learned on that end as well and also navigating you know intergenerational trauma that was that was hard but those experiences definitely impacted me in terms of having a sense of how people who kind of are on the outside of perhaps their own families or feeling marginalized feeling a bit alone, like how they navigate the world and why it's important to care for those people and how. And so if you think of all the different marginalized communities I've worked with over the years, there is a sense, not necessarily of kinship, but of knowing something about certain aspects of their experience. And that lends itself to a much more authentic research experience because research can be pretty like here's a question, do, 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 and thank you very much, you know. I think a lot of us do a lot more than that, but it can be a kind of foreign experience for a lot of people, especially marginalized communities, and sort of having that, sort of if you want to call it street credibility or background that is kind of close can kind of lower the power imbalance between you and also just generate trust, and that's really essential to building relationships, which is what I think good research is all about no matter what you're looking at, right? So those kinds of experiences shared different aspects of my research trajectory. And I also was really excited to travel. And so I've been to universities and educational settings and different environments um, from Saskatchewan, Ontario, Newfoundland, Northern Quebec Reserve communities, Winnipeg, uh, BC, and now Southern Ontario. And I lived in India during my PhD. That's where I did my research. So I have really taken advantage of the different experiences that have come my way. And it's not like I have been just completely carefree and just going along for the ride. <laughs> no, I can be a, like a complete micromanager. And I, you know, the older I get, the more anxious I am about a lot of things. And I'm a hard worker. School in a lot of ways sort of saved my life. And meeting certain professors that saw something special in me and I wasn't really feeling that in any other aspect of my life, totally transformative. And it just showed me what I can do. And I was just so diligent and hardworking and excited by learning about the world and people. 
I mean, God, we're all, we're so interesting. Even people who might look like boring, you never know what is, you know, they might just be the most interesting person. You know, we are, we all have so many stories. And I think having the pleasure and having, you know, the special opportunity to be able to learn about stories from people who don't get asked very much is, I think, one of the most beautiful things, you know? Um, a, lo- a lot of the projects I've worked on have been impacted by the people who design them, right? Sometimes I'm just a coordinator. They're not always led by me. I've been a part of a lot of different projects that I would have never designed myself, but my expertise with gender, sexuality, women, qualitative work, arts-based research has brought me into a whole range of things. And so that's quite exciting. And also, you know, with the dating app piece is, you know, thinking about leaning into my own experiences and wanting to move away from some of the more formal kinds of research things which is a decision I made after I got tenure so it wasn't again just a decision I happened to come upon it was working from a strengths-based position you've got tenure and you've been promoted to a certain degree you know you have security and I you know have a fairly strong reputation as a researcher and advocate feminist etc so I really wanted to take a chance on myself and it was win-win, right? Yeah. That's really inspiring. Yeah, it, it truly is. Because, like, even for myself, I started first year as a med size student. Mm-hmm. And within a few weeks, I transferred to HealthSci because right. I realized very quickly that that wasn't necessarily the path mm-hmm. for me. And it was a very scary thing. And I'm sure a lot mm-hmm. of listeners, HealthSci students, um, went through the same thing. So what advice would you give? Obviously, you've you've gone through a lot of journeys of finding yourself and finding what path best suits you. What advice would you give to students who are in that mindset of, I'm not so sure what I mm-hmm. want to do, but maybe it's in the health side field. Maybe it's writing a book. Yeah. And they're just yeah. trying to figure out where life will take them. Sure. And I, I mean, I, I get that question a lot. And I think that's, you know, it's kind of part of our responsibility to engage students within these discussions. You know, one of the questions I often ask people is, you know, what would be your dream job if there were no limitations in terms of money, geography, et cetera, what would you love to do? And then think about, okay, so you've got that sort of, that's the sort of very bright star over here. What are some ways that you can think about building your strength set to make you closer to that goal, whether it's, you know, looking for research opportunities, whether it's switching your program, right? Um, Getting to know your academic advisors, no matter what department you're in, or school or faculty, they are the ones who really know you in a way that a lot of profs don't, right? And they're trained to help you navigate some of those decisions about what stream to be in, where you might be more inspired, you know, how to combine the experiences that you think you want or, you know, that kind of thing. So I think a huge shout out to academic advisors everywhere. Their jobs are so important and they often don't get the credit they deserve. And I also think that trusting yourself and your own interests and giving yourself a little bit of breathing room, which can be like, where, is, where am I going to find that, right? I mean, there's so much pressure. There's a lot of competition. Global economics, you know, a lot of things are changing that make deciding what you want to do really important. But sometimes when you make a decision based on maybe fear or anxiety or uncertainty or what parents want or what your friends are doing, you might not achieve it right? Because it's not really yours. And I think also volunteering at different spaces that you're interested in is a great way to become familiar with sort of the inner workings of whether it's research, community dynamics, um, policy related spheres, 
ethical issues, community-based organizations, you know, experiential learning is a huge asset. And I think we've got lots of cool opportunities for that here. And certainly within the faculty and the School of Health, of Health Studies, you've got interns, you've got practicums, you've also got independent studies, which are great for folks who are interested in grad school. It kind of gives you a sense of, okay, this is what independent research feels like. Um, and that can be scary because the transition from undergrad to your first graduate degree is by far, is that's the biggest jump. Last year I was an undergrad, and now I'm not, and it feels very different, and that is normal, right? But if you kind of like do some of those experiential pieces, as well as talk with your professors, I know it can be intimidating. And some of us are not as open to having these kinds of chats, you know, this is true. But when you show an interest in who they are as a person, not just like, do you have a research opportunity for me, but also asking questions like you're, like you're asking me, I can kind of make people feel a bit more relaxed and sort of more more inclined to open and chat and you know things might come up in the course of that research that it's like oh maybe that's something that I want to pursue you know so again sort of different people's stories really hold a lot of clues to some things that you might want to pursue and looking at what other graduates of the different programs that you're interested in like where are they now what kinds of things are they doing so those are just some things to to think about. Thank you. Thank you for that. One of the questions that we were planning on asking you actually was how would a health science student or any student for that matter, anyone watching this podcast, (laughs) listening to this, how would they get involved with a research opportunity? Like how would Mm -hmm. they approach something like this? But I, I really think you kind of answer that in the sense that make the people that are in charge not feel like just gateway into the research and more like actual people because like you said that's what you guys are yeah (laughs) it is what we are um (laughs) yeah look at the profiles the academic profiles and it will say these are the areas of interest and sometimes it'll have links to previous graduate students that they've worked with and you can maybe reach out to those grad students hey what was your experience like working as part of this lab Um, But, you know, really one of the first places to go is, you know, the independent uh, or the individual researchers who are doing that kind of work. Also, a lot of spaces have, you know, graduate advisors. So that's another space to look at, look at the different programs that they offer, look at who's teaching these programs, which courses, does any of this line up? Well, now we know. (laughs) So just picking up on, I know you talked a lot about working with marginalized communities. How has your role as a lecturer, as a professor, how have you taken more of a holistic approach in in what you're teaching and how you teach it and how you go about that to Mm -hmm. make a more inclusive space in a university setting where that Mm -hmm. may be harder to do? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And in some ways, the holistic approach I take to not just what I do, but how I do it, it's very much impacted by being an anthropologist because... Well-trained anthropologists are interested in the totality of a cultural environment and how everything from structural factors like gender, age, race, ability, how that impacts, you know, everyday stuff. So I'm constantly being mindful of the interplay between those bigger, broader factors as well as the minutia of mundane everyday life, right? That's where most of us spend our time is how was your morning? And, you know, we talked about our mornings before starting the podcast and we're all, what did I do this morning? You know, but it's just sort of reflecting on the things that we do every day and also the kinds of social communities we interact with, you know, as someone who is, I guess you could say an ally and a member of different marginalized communities. For me, it just is second nature to 
be inclusive. I'm not saying that the way that people do inclusivity is always the same because it can look very, very different depending on who you are, what your different communities are, what kinds of resources you have access to. But I think that even just talking about inclusivity and really advocating for it, especially in a space that you could say is kind of a colonial space, right? Universities, a lot of educational spaces. Yeah, the university is making strides to, you know, impact a lot of different things and make it more welcoming and make it more diverse. And it certainly has become more diverse since I have been, you know, here since 2008. But we do have a long way to go and there sometimes is resistance to it or sometimes there's lip service to it. And then it's like, what actually feels different here? Sometimes not very much. I think, you know, really being political and owning the things that I care about and talking about them with my students, with my colleagues in the same way. I'm not someone else in a boardroom meeting. I'm the same person that I am with you, that I am in, you know, the union meetings. When I teach my classes, I am myself. I think that that is really important in terms of generating a sense of authenticity and also trust in what I do in the sense that, okay, no, it's I think she does really walk the walk. You know, she doesn't just say it and then just actually not do it in real life. So those kinds of things, they come naturally, but they're also work. And they can come with resistance. They can come with people snickering behind my back. They can come with, you know, all sorts of behaviors that can sometimes emerge when you say stuff that other people don't have the courage to say. I don't need to be friends with everyone. You know, I just don't. That's not, life's too short, you know, and I have to use my privilege and I'm going to use my voice. And that is part of the joy of what I do, but also the work, you know, and it's sort of that, that, that ethic that underguides a lot of what I do. Yes, period. That was <laughs> so well said. Yeah, I try. I really love how you stick to your morals. You know what your morals and your values are and you advocate for that and you like live by that maybe it's because I'm still 18 maybe it's because I'm still figuring my shit out I know that a lot of other people my age are as well but when I do my self-reflection I find that I do spend a lot of time thinking okay what are my values like what do I want to voice for and what do I want to advocate for and how do you figure that out because I'm just the reason I ask is because I mean the way that you guys are growing up and the environments that you're in feel like it must be a lot to navigate you know I I find it a lot to navigate as someone who's turning 51 next Wednesday just FYI my birthday is next Wednesday (laughs) but navigating society media etc as a young person I think must be very very challenging for a class the other day so off topic for a class the other day I literally wrote um was talking about the differences between millennials and Gen Z Mm -hmm. and one of the main ones, and it's not just millennials, like old any older generation in Gen Z. And I found that one of the major differences is that Gen Z, we were born into a time where technology and the media and just the internet has been around. Mm-hmm. And I think we like we've grown really accustomed to it, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a lot. Like I, me personally, I don't think that the internet is. I don't want to say not natural. It's definitely. I don't think we as humans are supposed to be mm-hmm. exposed to that much media that much information all the time all at once no and I I talk about that in the book too because our uptake of not just dating apps but you know technology writ large certainly it's helpful but our over-reliance on it to the point where someone is terrified to meet in person 
that tells us a lot about, you know, the way that it dulls our human skills. And we need those skills, not just in times of crisis or, you know, to respond to a certain situation, but this is not human. These phones are not human. We are. And, you know, to have the courage to put it down or to interact with them differently, I think that's worth investing a lot of time in because we are designed in a particular way. And technology will always be there. It's like, how do we want to use it? And what does it feel like to not use it or to use it in a different way? I think those are such important questions. I think every two weeks I consider becoming a Luddite. I'm like, I just, no more technology (laughs) for me. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. Right. Well, I actually, about Luddites, I listened to this amazing show. There's a book, I forget the author's name, but it's relatively recent. And I always thought of a Luddite as kind of like caveman type of, you know, someone who's like really ignorant about technology and just like wants to be olden times. But Luddites were actually people who could see the long game in terms of the negative impacts of automation. So we're talking Industrial Revolution time, right? So late 1700s, you know, forward. And they could see it was putting out of work a lot of these families who were, you know, textile makers and their families and different kinds of communities who have always had a really important uh, role in different kinds of product development, but also seeing all the injuries respective to like the role of children who were often forced, you know, to fix the machines and run them because they were so small, you know, and the impact it was having on children and the health, you know, all the pollution in the community. And they didn't like that. So when we think of Luddites, and I just recently learned this, so um, I might have to adjust a little bit in my own book because I kind of like, oh, I was a Luddite, you know. But Luddites were actually kind of very informed people who were resisting technology for particular kinds of reasons. So just a little mm-hmm. fun fact about Luddites. I love that. <laughs> like, back to the morals. They were very, <laughs> very, you know, they, mm. they stuck by their morals and their oh, values. Yeah. And... We had one last question we wanted, or a topic we wanted to talk about with you. It's kind of a silly one. Okay. Um, And it's about the significance of Tuesdays. So I follow your social media. I follow your Instagram. (laughs) Do Tuesdays mean anything important to you? Because I see a lot of happy Tuesday posts, Tuesday reels. This is interesting. Well, Tuesdays, that's the day that I teach my creative healing class. And I teach that class from 9.30 to 12.30. And I have noticed myself that I'm like, oh, I've got a lot of Tuesdays on here. (laughs) And I think it's because that class, it has been just such pure joy and a pleasure. And I see the impact that our discussions have on the students. Like it's just, it's palpable and people feel comfortable. And that's a class where they often say that, you know, it feels very inclusive in like a genuine way and that a lot of university spaces do not feel like that. And so... It just like I literally just kind of skip out of that class <laughs> and I just I'm all do 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 you know whether or not I've been you know awake since 4 a.m. or you know possibly 5 a.m. but Tuesdays are always kind of sunny they're obviously really inspiring and I think that's yeah it's an interesting observation Thursday today Thursday? Thursday. Thursday. Today's Thursday. So happy Thursday because it was an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And I think we both enjoyed our conversation with you. And I'm sure all the listeners will too because you have so much insight. And Mm. so we absolutely love talking to you today. Oh, this was great. Thanks for coming in. This was really great. I really appreciate you having me on. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Apple Show. We've been your hosts, Tara. And Aisha. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, and Channel 94.9 Radio Western. If you'd like to be involved with the show and speak as a guest or get in contact with us, email us at hssatheapple at gmail.com. 
And check out our newsletter from our Instagram at HSSA underscore Apple. And remember, an Apple a day keeps the doctor away.